welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. So, um, I'm going to invite Katie Crawford to come up to the front. Katie is our artist in residence for this month, and so if you've been around Awaken, every, every other month or so we try to have an artist uh, who displays their stuff in the back, and uh, we try to incorporate that into our gatherings a little bit. So if you would, please welcome Katie Crawford, everybody. Yes! Uh, Katie, tell us a little bit about how you and your family made your way to Awaken. Um, we moved back to St. Paul last August, so... Um, From the other side of the river, right? Yeah, okay. we lived in St. Paul, moved to Minneapolis, moved out to the boonies, and now we're back in now St. Paul. And we being your husband... And, and my three boys. Three boys. And we live six blocks from church, so we came here because we needed somewhere close enough that we'd maybe make it to church on time. Quasi on time, every now and again. But we still don't, yeah, so. that's all right. And one of, your boys, one of your boys has an interesting first name. Micah. Oh, that's so great. What a lovely name. Our oldest, yeah. He's such a nice boy. Um, <laughs> so tell us about art and creativity. Like, when did you know that that was in you? Um, so I've always been creative in different ways. I um, used to be a performance major, um, singing. And then I used to sew, and I've always been kind of crafty. And then last fall, I started doing more um, watercolor and lettering as a form of therapy for um, mental health stuff, um, like in relation to race issues mm -hmm. and birth, this kind of work that I love. So. so you have a book that has been published, I know. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's called Black Love. Um, it's a coloring book, and it is full of... Um, coloring books are usually for kids, but like anybody can... Yeah, yeah. so it has a lot of affirmations in it for the black community, but it's also great for anyone to color. It kind of can um, build those bridges that are kind of hard to yeah. connect in some ways. Um, and it has like florals in it, and I'm working on another one that's called Girl Power for Women's Empowerment. So. Come on now. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And where could someone find these books if they wanted to buy them? I like you. Thank uh, you. <laughs> you missed that first. You missed that. I did miss that first, first hour. <laughs> it came to me right there, and I went for it. Um, Which is a store. Yeah, they have one in Minneapolis and one on. Snelling okay. now by Spy House. Um, Wet Paint on Grand has some. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think of a uh, color wheel gallery in Minneapolis has some. Um, and of course, you have a website. I have a website. There's some cards at the welcome desk. And um, yeah, most of my prints and stuff are on my website. I'm guessing that this kind of a coloring book might be an interesting thing for a parent and kids to like work through together. Yeah, so I'm, I'm also working on kind of revamping the Black Love one too because I want to kind of include a... Like a guide? A guide, yeah, yeah sure. of some sort. Cool. For like teachers or... Parents who don't know parents, what they're doing. Yeah, parents of like maybe white parents who have like yeah. kids of color, which is how I grew up, so... Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Um, 
Tell us what's in the back. What are we looking at? Um, so all of the stuff in the back is watercolor backgrounds with calligraphy ink work on top. I'm a calligrapher letterer, so I do a lot of wedding stuff if anyone needs a calligrapher. Nobody here gets married. <laughs> but um, a lot of, um, all of it, or most all of it, except for like one, I um, think is all um, quotes by people of color, which is what I like to focus on. So. Awesome. Yeah. Can we give Katie a round of applause? Thank you. Encourage you to check out her work in the back as you see uh, her and David around, ask questions, uh, engage in that. Um, I'm going to invite you to stand, if you would, please. Um, greet your friend, pass the peace of Christ around the room for a bit, if you can. That's the new walk-up music for a pastor who's no longer suspended in the covenant. <laughs> uh, in all seriousness... Um, uh, went to Chicago this week and had some really um, intense but good meetings uh, and met with the Board of Ordered Ministry, was able to discuss and ask, they asked a lot of questions and uh, I was able to share a little bit about my experience and the journey in this process uh, and in the end the, the, the Board of Ordered Ministry lifted the probationary suspension that I was under. So fully restored to any and all ministry in the covenant which is very cool, very cool. And if you're new this morning, um, welcome to our church. <laughs> In all seriousness, um, we have a, a meeting next Sunday night on the 28th where uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this. Um, and so this conversation around human sexuality and really how we as a denomination are walking this out and how really pastors who are in the midst of this um, are living into this and walking this out. So we'll have uh, more of a detailed report then and uh, some time for Q&A and all of that. Um, but for those of you uh, who sent texts and who um, emailed, thank you. Laura and I felt so very supported and uh, loved while we were there. So thank you for that. Uh, I guess we have a sermon to preach, eh? That's my job. So here we go. Uh, we're in Epiphany. This is the season after Christmas, and it's the season before Easter, we're on our way to Lent and Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday, the, where it's all headed, which is exciting. And we're in the Gospel of John, so we're in the narrative lectionary, and we're walking through the Gospel of John on our way. Today we're going to look at a passage that's actually, I find it ironic, actually, that to, this is the passage that's today. Um, but this passage often is quoted or called up when uh, conversations get a little hot, a little spicy, a little heated, which certainly some of these have been in the last week for me. Um, this one, this passage is often quoted like when someone loses their temper, this one gets called up. Or when uh, somebody makes sort of a relational mess, they quote this passage. Or sometimes if somebody makes a stand on something and then they'll quote this passage and it usually goes something like this, well, Jesus turned over tables in the temple so I'm just following Jesus, right? Have you ever heard this before? Uh, we're in John 2 and that's the story where Jesus goes into the temple and he flips over a bunch of tables. So that's what we're going to study and um, does this like, does it give us permission to do that? Like as Christians, because Jesus did it, now should we be doing that or can we do that or when should we do that? Um, and I want to I invite us to look a little closer this morning. I want to invite us to really kind of zoom in. And why does Jesus get so upset that he does this? This is arguably the most animated action, um, the most 
one could call, one could maybe even say violent or, uh, um, um, boy, impassioned moment in Jesus' ministry. What gets him so badly that he does this? And why does John tell the story the way he does? John has this very early on in the Gospels. The other Gospel writers have it at the end. Uh, and then what does it mean for us, right? Like, if we read the Bible and we never ask the question, does this mean anything for you and for me now, then I think it's a grand adventure in missing the point. So is there anything for you and for me here in 2018? So that's where we're going. Uh, I would invite you to stand if you can, and we will read from John chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Typically, people start this story in verse 13, but we're going to start it in 12 for this reason. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and stayed there for a few days. John's interested to know what is Jesus' home. Where is Jesus calling home? And for a Jewish rabbi or teacher, rabbis come a little later by history's sake, for a Jewish teacher, one would assume that his home is the temple. But John is making a very interesting shift here just by saying that. So now we start the story properly in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. And so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered what that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he spoke of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw signs, the signs he was performing, and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Pray with me. God, as we come together under your name, Jesus, as your church, we turn our attention to the scriptures. This book, which has been preserved over so many years and which you continue to reveal yourself to us through. And so we pray that that would be the case for us today. That whatever word we might need to hear, whatever encouragement, whatever exhortation, whatever comfort might be given, that it would come through your spirit and by this word. So, Father, for the preacher, give him confidence. Give, uh, give me the words that uh, need to be said. I pray that whatever is not of you would just fall off the end of the stage and not be remembered. But that which is of you, I pray that it would remain, that it would take root deep in our hearts and that it would form us, that it would shape us to be the people you've called us to be and made us to be. And in the strong name of Christ, all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Woo! Hot in hair. I mean... Do you ever just try to imagine the story? Like when you hear it, you sort of close your eyes and you imagine yourself there. This one would have been a fun one to be a fly on the wall for, don't you think? <laughs> like Jesus comes into the temple and I can imagine him just kind of like taking a seat somewhere and just slowly weaving a cord, looking at all these people saying, it's about to go down. <laughs> when we study the Bible, there are lots of questions that come. And 
for good reason. Some of them are good questions. Some of them are helpful questions. Sometimes they're maybe not the most helpful questions. One of the questions that we ask us Protestants, if you grew up in the Protestant tradition, us evangelicals, if you grew up in the evangelical tradition, is what does it mean? Like, we read the Bible, and we're like, well, what does it mean? What does it, what, what's it, what are we supposed to do? What's the meaning of the text? And that's a good question, right? When John wrote the book, he had an intention. He had a, there was, he was trying to say something, and so one could argue there's an original intent. And that's a good thing to ask. It's a good thing to try to understand it. But what does it mean? It's like we're, we're after the one singular meaning of the text, and arguably the text is actually speaking at multiple levels, right? And the Bible itself says that it's alive, it's active, it's breathing, it's sharper than a double-edged sword, it has the, the capacity to divide things. So God's still using the Bible today to say things to us, and we're not living in John's age, and so what's being said on this level isn't maybe what was being said on this level, and so what does it mean might not be the best question, maybe a better question, or what are the levels, or what are the layers that the Bible is speaking to? So maybe you could say the Bible's a bit more like a layer cake than a sheet cake, for those of you who like baking, it's a little tiramisu, right, you know, a little Neapolitan thing going on. So what are the layers? What are the levels that this story is engaging? And I want to look at that, and I want to, I'm going to encourage us to really sort of um, to, to lean in close and try to peel back some of these layers that I think John is getting at when we read this story. So we'll look at the historical level, which is asking, what does it say? What did it mean? What did Jesus do, and what did he mean by doing it? We'll look at the story level, which is, what is John doing in telling the story the way he's telling it and putting it where he's putting it? And then this last level of you and I in 2018, like, does this have anything to do with us? Jesus goes into a temple and turns over a bunch of tables. Like, what does that mean for us? So, let's start with history. First and foremost, first layer. And it's asking the question, what did it mean? What is it saying? Um, what actually happened and why did Jesus do it? And arguably, this is the most difficult layer, right? Because you can't just call our friend Jebus and say, hey, why did you do that? It's a joke, everybody. <laughs> no one that was there is here. In fact, we're hundreds of generations away from the event, so what actually happened and why did he do it is a tricky question, right? It's the hardest work of the biblical interpreter, but that's the question it's asking. Why is Jesus so upset that he flips over these tables in a temple and causes a giant scene? Why does he do it? One of the most common answers to this question of why did Jesus do what he did has to do with the temple and this idea of the temples being used to make money, right? That most people would say that Jesus is upset because the place of worship, the temple, is now being used as a place of commerce. In fact, people have come up to us at Awaken. We do this thing called the Advent Art Fair. And if you've ever been here for that, you know, there's tables in the back and there are people and they're selling their craft and their work and their art. And people have said, you know, Micah, I think there's a story about Jesus going into the temple and like turning over tables where people are selling stuff. Do you really think we should be doing that? <laughs> That's a fair question. I think it misses the point on a few levels, and I hope that that becomes more clear as I unpack this, but it's a fair question. There's some truth to it. But a lot of scholars and pastors, myself included, would argue that that's not the primary motivation for Jesus' actions, like that there was commercial activity happening in the temple. In fact, one could argue that was totally normal and necessary. 
right? It's Passover, John says. And so three different times during the calendar year, Jewish people would come from around the villages and the lands around, and they would make their way to Jerusalem to celebrate a te- uh, uh, um, uh, an event. Uh, this one's Passover. They, pa- they celebrated Sukkot. They celebrated three different times they would make their way. And Passover's the biggest one. And in order to do that, or the central activity during those celebrations was sacrifice. So you would come up to the, you'd ascend the hill, which is literal, you'd go up the hill to the top where the the temple was, and you would go to the temple and you would participate in sacrifice, which is the, the heart of worship for the people of God in the ancient world. And if you didn't bring an animal because you were traveling for so far, or you didn't have an animal that was worthy of sacrifice, you would need someone to sell an animal that you could sacrifice in the temple. And so there were people who had animals that were, you know, uh, worthy of sacrifice. There was a whole list of things that they had to sort of pass through the screening in order to be worthy of being offered as a sacrifice in the temple. So the fact that people were there selling, you know, doves and goats and whatnot, totally normal, needed, necessary for the people of God to be the people of God and to worship God. Not only that, but there was two different currencies in the ancient world for Jews who lived in the Roman Empire. There was a Roman currency, which was all around, and you could buy things, milk, eggs, cereal, macaroni, whatever you needed. And then when you went to the temple, there was another currency. And you had to pay a temple tax to sort of keep the temple going, right? Uh, And you had to buy the sacrifices, and you could only do that with temple money. So you needed people to exchange your money. When you came from wherever you came from, Bethlehem or, or you know, wherever, you'd make your way to the temple and you'd exchange your money so that you could have temple money and you could pay your, give your tithes and offerings and buy what you needed. So it's not out of the norm and it's not wrong that there's commercial activity happening around the temple. It's totally natural. It was needed, in fact. But how that activity was happening and where that activity was happening sheds light on why Jesus does what he does. How? How is that transaction happening? How is that business being done? If you dig a little bit, you begin to find out that there are a group of people who are, they're like TSA, right? You've been to the airport, you know, and you have to go through security, and they determine whether or not you're fit to fly. And if you have a nail file or, you know, you can't can't bring those things on, so you got to get rid of them. If you have liquids, three ounces, whatever. By the way, do you ever notice that sometimes you have to take your shoes off and sometimes you don't? Sometimes you have to take out your laptop and sometimes you don't. Just consistency would be helpful. So I said to the guy, I'm like, what's the deal, man? Why do you have to take off your shoes sometimes and other times you don't? Do you know what it is? It's the dogs. Yeah. (laughs) You're all like, I don't get it, Micah. If you've been to the airport lately, sometimes there's a dog right before you get to the security checkpoint and he's like circling around. If the dog's there, you don't have to take off your shoes. So look for the line with the dog, all right? That's my travel tip for you all today. So there's TSA pre-check for the people who are going up to the temple. They have to check their animals, right? Like if you brought your own animal and you could, you brought it, you would have to go through, they'd have to go through clearance and they'd have to get cleared to be sacrificed at the temple. And if they didn't meet the requirements, then you couldn't sacrifice the animal. Any guesses as to who was in charge of TSA at the temple? Temple officials. So the people who ran the temple were in charge of clearing you and your animals. So let's say you and your family, you're walking up to Jerusalem, you've got your goat named Billy, and Billy, you walk up to TSA and you're like, we'd like to offer Billy as a sacrifice in the temple. Well, TSA is run by the organization that's actually doing the sacrifices. And so they say, we're sorry, Billy is not fit for sacrifice in the temple, but guess what? 
we've got one you can buy from us. Like a ripe scenario for exploitation and for uh, (laughs) mm, corruption, let's call it. So the people in charge of the temple who cleared all the animals who could be brought up to the temple for sacrifice are saying, nope, sorry, that one doesn't fit, that one doesn't fit, and actually we'll sell you this one for a trumped up. It's like the state fair. (laughs) Right? Or like when you go to a hotel and there's nothing around you and they charge you $10 for a glass of beer, and you're like, seriously, this couldn't cost more than a dollar. And they're like, where else are you going to find it? Where else are you going to find your animal worthy of sacrifice? So many would argue, it's not the fact that they were selling animals, but it was how they were selling the animals. And some would argue that the temple system, the very thing that's supposed to enable the worship of God's people, is actually exploiting and corrupt and and leveraging worship for profit. I'm so glad that none of our systems are like that. (laughs) Where the people in charge are actually the ones for, like, they rig the system so that they just perpetually exist. I'm so glad we're past that. We've evolved humans, you know? It's so good. How it's being done, Jesus is like, that is not okay. Like, he is, he is, he is, he's ramped up, you know what I'm saying? And it's for good reason, because the very system that's supposed to allow and enable God's people to come and to worship and to taste and see that the Lord is good is actually corrupt, all the way down to the core. The other thing is where. Where is it actually happening? If I had a map, if we had a screen, I would show you. Um, In Jerusalem, you have the Mount of Olives over here, and there's a valley. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. And actually, scriptures say that like the Valley of Hinnom would run red with blood. All of the sacrificial blood would run out of the temple and down this valley, literally. So you have the the Mount of Olives, the Valley of Hinnom, and then the Temple Mount. And they're very close to one another, like a quarter mile. You can see across from one to the other. And history and archaeology will tell us that the selling of the animals and the exchanging of the money used to happen on the Mount of Olives on the, on the other side, and the temple activities happened over here. So you'd come and you'd exchange your money and you'd get your animals and then you'd make your way down the valley and back up to the temple and you'd go into the temple. Well, that activity has now found a new location. And if I had a screen, I would then show you that the temple mount is a concentric um, rectangles that move from the outside all the way to the end. So on the far outside of the temple mount is called the court of the Gentiles. And it's the only place that someone who's outside of Israel, who's interested in the God of Israel, could come and could worship God. And then inside of that, there was a wall, and then there was the court of the women. And then inside of that, there was like the, where the major activity of, the, of the, the, the worship of God's people happened. And then there was the temple, the altar mount, and then inside of that, there was the holy of holies. And so these concentric circles of worship was how the structure of the temple was organized. And what's happened is that what used to happen outside of the temple on the hillside has moved into the temple, and it has taken up residency in the only place that the people who are on the outside trying to get into Israel can actually come and worship God. So they've taken up the entire court of the Gentiles for this activity who happens to benefit the insiders. And there's no place for the people who are on the outside looking in to come and to ask and to seek and to taste and see that the Lord is good. You can see why Jesus might be a little ramped up, right? Because the very thing, the, the symbol of the worship of God's people and the only place in that symbol where someone who was on the outside of in could come and could worship has been taken over by the people on the inside who benefit from the whole system in and of itself. One author says, by the selling of sacrificial animals and setting up their currency exchange in the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple, the merchants in effect torpedoed Gentile worship and the only place where it was possible. 
That is what flies in the face of God and Jesus' desire for the temple to be a place of worship for not just for Israel, but for all nations. Isaiah 56, my house will be a house for all people. So why was Jesus so upset? What drove him and motivated his actions? The temple was a symbol that stood at the center of Israel's social and religious and political life. It was a physical representation of God and God's dwelling with the people of God. It was the symbol of everything that Yahweh was about according to the scriptures, which was blessing for the world and relationship and forgiveness and compassion for the entire world, not just Israel. And now this symbol, this place, this icon was being used to exploit worshipers coming, coming to give praise to God. And those who were on the outside trying to come near, those who were being, uh, who, who were, they were being blocked and obstructed by the very people and systems that were supposed to enable them to come and see that the Lord is good. What was good news for everybody was only good news for some people. It's quiet in here. Why was Jesus so upset? Because something that was intended for blessing and for hope and for grace and for forgiveness and for anyone who was interested to come and taste and see that the Lord was good had actually become the very thing that kept some people out and let others in. I'll just leave that right there. On a story level, what's John doing? Why does John tell the story the way he tells the story? He takes this event and he puts it right next to the wedding at Cana. The other gospel writers put it all the way at the end. Why? John, I can't overemphasize the importance of the temple. Like for us, we sort of divide up our life, right? We have a social life, we have a religious life, a political life, an economic life. And sometimes those things never actually interact with one another. Which arguably is the product of a way in which we tell the story of the gospel, but that's another sermon for another day. For the Jews... It's all in one place. You've got D.C., Wall Street, and the Vatican all in one place, and it's called the Temple Mount. The, it's their whole life. It's a symbol of everything that they are, religiously, politically, socially, economically. It's all there in the temple. It's the place where the mediated presence of God rested in the Holy of Holies where heaven and earth met. This is the Temple Mount. So what John is saying on a story level is that there is... There's a wind blowing and there's a change coming where God's presence and activity and dwelling was in the temple and the center, the gravitational pull of God's activity in the world was in the temple. It's now being shifted to the Christ, to this Jesus, this incarnate manifestation of the divine in the flesh. What was in the temple is now in the Christ. So the question, and this is bad, by the way, why Paul says that you as the believer who by faith trust this Christ are now indwelled by the Spirit of God and you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says that. Because what was in the temple in Israel is now in you and in me as we live and breathe in the world. So you have this historical question, why did Jesus do what he did? How the action in the temple was happening and where it was happening influenced Jesus' actions. And then you have John's story level. What's he doing? He's saying that something is changing in Christ. So we, we wrestle with that. We wonder, well, what does that mean for you and for me? Now, what about personally, you and me, 2018? And I'll have to admit, while I was prepping for this sermon, um, 
Any Enneagram people in the room? Like Enneagram, it's, a, it's like a spiritual gift kind of, not a spiritual gift, it's like a personality sort of deal that's used in spiritual formation. It's a bit like the uh, Myers-Briggs or the DISC test or some of those things, right? I'm an eight on the Enneagram. And eights on the Enneagram, we love a good conflict. Like, um, like sometimes eights pick fights. Some people will argue Donald Trump's an eight. I'm a, I like to think of myself as a healthy redeemed eight, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> And eights become advocates. They fight for things. They're, they're willing to, like, and so when I read this, I'm like, yeah, let's do this. Jesus is picking a fight with the power. Jesus is about to walk into the temple and say, come on now. Who wants to go a couple of rounds with me? And I realized as I was listening to some people who were not eights reflect on this passage, they're like, ah, that Jesus kind of bothers me. Like fives and ones and nines, they're like peacemakers and they hate conflict. And one of them happens to be my wife. And she's like, Micah, as much as you love Jesus the Eight, I have a little bit of a problem with Jesus the Eight, quite honestly. And I just thought, that's so fascinating how we all come to Jesus with our lens. And so I just wanted to say that out loud because I come to Jesus in this text and I'm like, let's do this, you know? I resonate with that on a very deep level. And some of you may be going, I have a really hard time with this passage. That's okay. Could I offer maybe another lens for you as you read it and as you interpret it? If you find yourself in that category, Jesus is also like protecting something. The people who are on the outside who want to come and be near to God are being obstructed. And what Jesus is doing, he's for the underdog. Jesus sees the kid in the back of the dance who wants to be a part of the thing but has been kept out by all the cool kids at the lunch table right? Jesus is an advocate for these people. Jesus is is doing something for and protecting a group of people by his actions. So he's not, he's he's speaking truth to power. He's challenging the system. Absolutely. He's having a go at it for sure. And for the eights in the room, we are with you. I am with you. For those who maybe see it differently or need to see it through a different lens, is it possible to see what Jesus is doing as an act of preservation, an act of protection, an act of care? Because sometimes, gang, tables need to get turned over. Sometimes, systems need to be challenged. Sometimes, people need to be called into account for the ways that they are leading and speaking on behalf of God. Sometimes, an organization or a system was intended for one thing and it becomes something else. Sometimes, the prophets among us need to stand up and speak truth to power and challenge the status quo. Sometimes, that's necessary. Sometimes we become asleep and numb to the very ways in which we begin serving ourselves at the, at, the, at the sacrifice of others. The question is when. When do you stand and say, no more? When is the moment when you say, I will not sit in the back of the bus? I will not drink from that fountain? When are those God-ordained moments in our lives when someone needs to stand up and say something or a group of people need to say, no, it's this way, not that way? That's the challenge. Can I get an amen? Because that's a razor's edge of discernment. And if you've ever been in that situation, everybody else has an opinion of what you should do in that moment, right? But you're the only one who has to live it out. You're the only one that has to walk it. And sometimes it will cost you. And so how do you know When do you stand up? When do you speak? When do you stay quiet? When do you advocate? When do you say enough is enough? That's the challenge. Because this text, if it does anything, 
I think it says that in, there are cases and there are moments along the way when God's people, empowered by the Spirit of God, need to be a prophetic voice and say, no, all people matter, not just white people, not just men, not just straight people. Sometimes the church has to stand up and say, no, we could do better, and we should do better, because the gospel deserves better, and that's not Jesus. The question is, when do you do that? And how do you know? Let me offer two pieces of wisdom, maybe, two considerations as you think about how do you know and when do you stand up? When do you protect? When do you preserve? When do you advocate? First one I would say is never me, always them. When you find yourself in a moment like this where you're discerning that maybe, the, maybe you're being invited as a group of people or as a person to step into something. If you find yourself as the main beneficiary, it's probably not the right moment. You know what I'm saying? If it's about, if in the end, your action shines the light on you instead of others, if it benefits you more than it does others, if it advances your cause or your career or your position more than it does others, I would argue you should probably just pause and seek some counsel and wisdom of people that you trust. This is not one plus one equals two, right? I'm just saying that when you find yourself in these moments, and if it's more about you and your ego than it is about others, then it's probably not Calvary. Because Calvary looks like you laying down your life at cost to you for someone else. That's the Jesus move. That's the kingdom move. And so if you find yourself there, and it is about someone else, and it's about others, and it's, about, and it's driven by love, and it comes at sacrifice and cost to you, odds are you're in a good spot. I'm not saying that you're going to be absolutely right, and this is the moment. It, this is art, not science, right? But wisdom would say, if you find yourself there, and it's more about you and your ego and your position and your advancement, then I would suggest to you that that would be a good time to tap the brakes. But when it is about others, and when it is motivated by love and sacrifice, and, and it may even cost you, that sounds like Jesus. That feels like Jesus. Press into that. Move towards that. The other thing I would suggest or invite us to consider is what do we carry into those scenarios? Like when you're about to go up against power, you're about to say something, you're about to take a stand, what do we want to do? Grab a weapon, right? Defend ourselves. Bring something that will help us not die. <laughs> and the way of the cross only arms you with love. It doesn't permit weapons. It doesn't permit words that divide and words that tear down and words that wound, words that are malicious in intent. It doesn't permit those things because that's not the gospel. That's not Jesus. Jesus comes and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do and then dies for them. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So what if it, what if it were the case where those of you who were called by God in the world, who follow this Jesus, who found yourselves in places, systems, schools, institutions, families, where someone needed to stand up and say, actually, I think the way of Jesus is this way? What if we found ourselves in those moments armed not with weapons, not with bombs and guns and war, not with words that divide and tear down, but with love? 
sacrificial love, the kind of love that pushes back darkness and, and evil, that stands in the face of things and says, no, Dr. King, Mandela, Desmond Tutu, Mother Teresa, who are armed with nothing but the love of Christ, nothing but the resurrection power of the gospel, and there they stand and they can do no other. A challenge to be peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the kingdom. I think somebody said that once. So my friends, I come to you this morning to, with a text that invites us into some really interesting space where if we follow this Jesus and Jesus finds himself in the middle of power, speaking truth to power and to people who have clearly missed the point on what the good news of the gospel and God's work in the world is, how do we enter into that space when we're called to? And for what cause? And I often ask a lot of questions, and I don't give you a lot of answers. And some people get really upset with that. And they say, Micah, that's not responsible. You're the pastor. You need to tell us what to do. And I just say, you should find another church. Because I'm not going to do that. Each of you have to walk this out for yourselves. You are, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have to discern what that means. And when you go in, and when you hold your tongue, and when you say, you know what? For the sake of love, for the sake of not creating barriers where people who want to find God and who want to experience the gospel and who want to be a part of this thing called the love of God, to not create barriers for them. Like There may be moments when you have to stand up and say that's a barrier and it's unnecessary and it's keeping people who want to be a part of this outside of in. And that's not the gospel. And all through history, there have been these moments, Right? for different causes, where somebody was on the outside of in, and those who were on the inside said, no, not them, unless they do these things. And I would just say, that's not your job. That's not our job. That's not the church's job. Our job is to say, here's the good news. God, who created it all, wants it all back, and has provided a way by Jesus, through Jesus, the death and the resurrection, is saying, anyone and everyone who wants to come, come, and we'll let God figure out the rest. Our job is to bear witness to that story, to be ambassadors of that good news, to not say you, but not you. That's not our job. And sometimes the church is called to stand up and to be a prophetic voice. Again, this is art, not science, and so I don't come to you with a one plus one plus one or a here are three steps to know you're in the right spot and the, you know the will of God. That's, if I ever said that, you all would say, Micah, don't be, don't. Don't do that to us. We're, we know that's not true. But here we find Jesus turning over tables in the temple. Because something about the people of God and the witness of God in the world had been compromised, had been skewed, was going in the wrong direction. And Jesus is saying, no, friends. It's about sacrificial love. And it's about making the table bigger, not smaller. So what do we do with that? You may come here this morning and you may have been on the outside. You may still feel like you're on the outside. And I wonder if there's a message of hope and encouragement to you that the one person who claims to manifest to be, the disciple said, we want to know what God is like. And Jesus said, just look at me. Give me your eyes right here. That that person says, flips over tables in a temple to make the space bigger for anybody and everybody who wants to know the living God.
And for some of you here this morning, you have agency, you have capacity, you have will, and you can use it in the world. And there may be a scenario in which you find yourself at work or in an institution or a part of a religious community where work needs to be done. I would just say you're in good company. Let's see how to do that in a way that lines right up behind Jesus the Christ, who goes all the way to Calvary, sacrifices his own self, his own life for the sake of the other, and says, this is what God looks like. Who wants to follow me? Pray with me, if you will. God, as we take a few moments in silence to consider what it means to be people of Jesus, who follow this Jesus into a temple where he turns over tables, into Samaria, where the hated outsider half-breeds live and talks to a woman at a well who's a prostitute and an adulterer, who heals a man on the Sabbath where you weren't supposed to heal anybody, who picks grain on the Sabbath when you weren't supposed to pick grain on the Sabbath, who where we want to follow this Jesus all the way to the cross, even if it costs our lives, for the blessing, the sake of, the love of those whom you call your children, precious and beloved. So God, in these next few moments of silence, whatever our invitation is in that, would you speak to us? Holy Spirit, I pray. My friends, as you go, two things. One, if you've ever felt on the outside for whatever reason, whether it's because of the color of your skin or your gender or who you love, I think Jesus says, come to me. Everybody. Consistently in the text, Jesus says, come to me. There's room for you. You're not on the outside. You're beloved. You're mine. I created you. I made you. I want you. So come. And to those of you who have agency in the room, whatever sphere that looks like, my prayer is that you'd be empowered by the Spirit, that you would act in accordance with the Jesus we follow, and that whatever action or words that we speak if it's to power or institutions, that it would be marked with love, and sacrificial love, that it might cost us for the sake of others, and that it would mirror the Jesus that we say we follow. So to that, I leave you with this blessing, that the Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord lifts up his face upon you and is gracious unto you. The Lord's lifting up his countenance to you and giving you his peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all of God's people said, Amen. With work to do, vamos. See you later. See you next week. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash awakencommunity or on Twitter at awakencommunity. See you next time.